Pulpit Report Radio, right here on Republic Broadcasting at republicbroadcasting.org. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight, as every night, all the way from my living room here in western Japan. So thank you once again for tuning in to tonight's broadcast, and shh, the government is listening. Do you feel like you're being watched and listened to and spied on all the time? Are you finding out about all the various ways that the government can pry into your personal life and read your emails and listen to your phone calls? Are you concerned about the ways that technology is being used to craft a control grid and to keep you from saying what you what you feel and from sharing information with others around you? Well, then you're not alone. In fact, in some ways, the surveillance society that we have been seen being constructed for the past several decades is designed to do exactly that. In fact, some people out there might be surprised to learn that there is a well-defined theory and concept behind all of this surveillance state technology that would actually make people stop doing things that they would normally do because they feel that they are being watched and listened to all the time. For people out there who are unfamiliar with this concept, it's called the panopticon. It's an idea that was come was originally from a 18th century British philosopher called Jeremy Bentham, and he came up with an idea for a perfect prison, a prison that had windows on the outside looking into a central hub, and then uh, the the prisoners are on the outside ring of that uh, of that prison, but on the inside in a central watchtower are some guards, and because the sunlight is shining in through the windows and in towards the uh, the central tower. The prisoners are backlit, so they can't see what's happening in that central tower. They can't see if the watch guards are actually watching them or not. And therefore, all of the prisoners, hundreds and hundreds of them in this vast prison, all feel as if they are being watched at any particular moment. Because they don't know. They don't know if they're being watched at a particular moment or not. So they start to act as if they are. All of them. Even though that's impossible, there are only a few guards in this central tower but for some reason, the prisoners always feel like they're being watched, so they start to act like they're being watched. That is the concept of the Panopticon. That is from the 18th century. And here we are in the 21st century, where we have a digital Panopticon, a prison of sorts from which we can't escape unless we get rid of our iPhone slave device or our our, our Skype connection or our internet or all of the other things that supposedly we need to keep us connected to this digital world. Well, of course, all of them, every single one is a communication technology that has all sorts of back doors and trap doors built into them so that you can be monitored and spied on and looked upon at all times of the day, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. We've seen story after story come out about cell phone tracking technologies, about Google Wi-Fi spying, about the NSA setting up secret rooms in right there in the back hubs of, of major telecom providers to snarf up all of the data wholesale. We know that this is going on because they've drug it out into the public on numerous occasions, but in some ways that's the point, to dangle the police state before our eyes, to show us the surveillance that's going on, so that we start to change the way we 
act, to, to change the way we, we to communicate with others, the way we express ourselves. We won't talk about certain issues if we feel like, oh, maybe we're being spied on. And that, my friends, is the point. That's how a very, very few people at the top can control masses of people down at the bottom who are afraid to speak out on what they believe in because they feel like they're being spied upon. That is the Panopticon, and that's the secret of how power is wielded in a surveillance society, and that's what we're going to be exploring tonight on Corbett Report Radio as we dip into the CorbettReport.com archives for examples of this from the past. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back here on Corbett Report Radio. We bomb them all for their prosperity, their freedom. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Here we are talking this night about the Panopticon. The Panopticon being an idea for controlling society by a very, very few people by using surveillance and surveilling everyone all the time, or at least convincing everyone that you're surveilling them all the time, and thereby curtailing their actions, making them feel that they're watched at all points, and getting people to stop any form of dissent or speaking out against the injustices that are going on because uh, they're afraid of what the government will do because they know the government and Big Brother are always listening. And it always comes back to this, and I know it does sound cliched at this point, but honestly, truly, if you haven't read 1984 or if you haven't reread it recently, I suggest you do so because it really does describe what a society in this in this uh, era in this time frame in this in this technological society actually looks like and the way that people function within it i think uh well george orwell uh was uh, of course that wasn't his real name it was eric blair but i, I think he was a, a keen observer of human nature and understood very well the type of system that those with their hands on the levers of power were seeking to bring in. So that's what we're studying tonight, and it's given a name. It's called the Panopticon, and that's the name of a perfect prison invented by 18th century English philosopher Jeremy Bentham. Basically, the key concept being that many, 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 many prisoners could be kept tabs on and kept track of and made to be kept in line by very, very, very few guards because of the physical layout of the prison with a central watchtower so that the uh, prisoners couldn't see if they were being watched, and thus they were always acting as if they were being watched. And, of course, we see this coming out more and more and more in the nightly news and it's it's done that way so that we are aware and understand that we are being surveilled. We know that they're watching and listening in to everything that we're doing. We know that they can and already are tracing and tracking all of our Internet data and every aspect of our increasingly digital lives. And we see the, the big rollout of all the crazy surveillance. And, uh, for example, earlier on this broadcast, uh, earlier uh, last year, I suppose, we were looking at the IntelliStreets uh, project, the talking street lamp that can also record your conversations and take your picture and all of these other crazy technologies that they're rolling out in our face right now. So we're going to be dipping into the CorbettReport.com archives for previous work that I've done on this subject, one that I've been covering basically since the inception of CorbettReport.com. And I will direct your attention to an episode of my podcast that I did on this very subject 
Way back in March of 2008, almost four years ago, I did an episode number 35 called The Panopticon, talking about this very subject and highlighting some of the, uh, some of the crazy, absolutely insane articles and things that, that show that there is a panopticon, there is a surveillance state that's uh, being erected and that unfortunately we're being immersed in. And I will direct your attention to that audio, if only for the absolutely amazing story that, uh, that I go over in that, uh, in that very episode uh, at the 11-minute mark of that podcast. I mentioned a story that was on Daily Mail at the time. It looks like they've scrubbed it for now, but I'm sure you can find backups somewhere online. The headline was, Roadside Cameras That Detect Blood Will Catch Lone Drivers Who Abuse Car-Sharing Lanes. And the central uh, conceit of that article was basically, well, we have to catch these people who are riding in car-sharing lanes with mannequins or with pictures posted up on the window to try to fool the cameras. So we need new high-tech cameras that don't take pictures of your vehicle. They don't look for the visual signs that there's someone else riding with you in that car-sharing lane. They actually detect the amount of bodily fluid in the car so that they can actually, for example, detect how much blood is in the car, and from that, use that as a determination of whether there is a second passenger. Again, you cannot make this up. It is absolutely nightmarish, the type of technology that they've been rolling out for years and years and years, and that's the type of story that we see so many of those types of stories that come and go, and if you blink, you miss them, but they're there on such a regular basis. They're clearly indoctrinating us to be scared, to be afraid, to watch what we're doing all the time. And in episode 35 of the Corporate Report podcast, I go into that in some more detail. So let's take a short listen to an excerpt from that podcast where I talk a little bit about the panoptic principle and play a clip from a very, very informative YouTube video about the surveillance society in the UK. It quickly becomes evident that when we talk about the panoptic principle, we're not merely speaking about the idea of people being watched in an architectural structure, as Jeremy Bentham described, or even just talking about the idea of being watched in the visible sense, as in cameras always watching us, or people always watching us. Instead, the principle can hold any time when our data is being collected and stored, data about things that we've bought, things that we've done, places that we've gone, people that we've met, people that we've spoken to, conversations that we've had. All of this data is relevant and can be recorded and stored in a centralized position, for those who seek to gain control over society through panoptic principles. Foucault gives the example of insurance companies, which collect large amounts of data on its customers, which, when compiled, can give a fairly extensive account of someone's life. Of course, in our day and age, it's the government from which all of these blessings of the panoptic society flow, and an idea of that comes for the drive in many of the developed nations around the world at this present moment, for a national ID card, which will have biometric identifiers to help protect us from those evil terrorists who, of course, could never obtain such identification. To get an idea of how the panoptic principle applies to the national ID cards, let's take a listen to this YouTube clip about how the Labour Party's drive in the UK to adopt a national ID card system is part of a larger panoptic principle of turning the entire society into a type of prison. 1787, an architect invented the perfect prison and called it the panopticon. The prisoners would be seen wherever they were, 
but would never know if they were being watched. It was designed to control the prisoners using surveillance alone and was seen as the ultimate power of mind over mind. No panopticons were ever built, but Tony Blair's most expensive legacy will be to have turned the entire country into a perfect prison. The government wants to put a tracking device in every car on the road. Surveillance cameras are being connected to directional microphones, as well as facial recognition software, so they will always know where you are and what you are saying. But we can make choices in spending too. And instead of wasting hundreds of millions of pounds on compulsory identity cards as the Tory right demand, let that money provide thousands of extra police officers on the beat where they can actually protect people. But now New Labour want to spend billions of our money on compulsory ID cards. We will pursue identity cards because they're right. We think it is legitimate and right in this day and age to ask people to carry identity cards. It is the right thing to do. Within a few years, you will be forced to carry an ID card, which will store a gold mine of private information, which will be uploaded to a database called the National Identity Register. Every time you interact with the state, it will form an audit trail, so the government will know your entire life's history. This will be linked to your medical records, your school records, and your DNA structure. Gordon Brown has already said that he will sell your information on to big businesses, whereas computer hackers will be able to get it for free. Okay, we'll leave that clip there. Once again, I will direct you to episode 35 of the Corbett Report podcast, of course, available from CorbettReport.com, where I go over more about the biometric IDs and all of the other aspects of the Panoptic Society that have been being rolled out for years and years and years now, but really are culminating in so many different ways right now. And on that very note, well, uh, there's, uh, uh, of course, the uh, the history of the, that ID scheme in the UK has uh, taken many twists and turns over the years, and uh, eventually enough protest and enough people were, uh, there was enough backlash that was able to derail the agenda, the idea that there was going to be a national ID card rollout with biometrics and all of that in the UK, at least for the time being, that project has been st- stalled, although there are uh, ID cards of that sort for foreigners, but uh, there's issues about the police not ha- being able to have uh, scanners that would even read them and all sorts of other debacles, but basically the ID card agenda in the UK was ultimately really derailed because of uh, funding and because of money rather than the actual civil liberties uh, implications, but we'll take a victory any way we can get it, I suppose. But unfortunately, other countries have not been so lucky, and for people who haven't been following it, there is an absolutely amazing development happening in India right now as uh, people might have heard for the last couple of years that India has been trying to uh, enact a, a scheme to enroll, well, ultimately, uh, eventually, all of its 1.2-plus billion inhabitants in a mas- massive national ID register that will include uh, government-issued IDs that will have digital fingerprints and iris scans on them as a form of identification. It's being sold in the name of helping the uh, the poor of the world, uh, of course, uh, the poorest people in India not having access to government-issued ID. This will be a fail-safe way. All they need is their fingerprints and the, uh, their irises, even though there is actual technical reasons why that might not work out anyway, because apparently the hands of manual, manual laborers are not exactly uh, prone to being reliable sources of fingerprints because fingerprints change over time when uh, the hands are involved in manual labor like that. Uh, Just one of the many, many, many problems with the technology itself 
But uh, in some ways, that's a red herring. They try to uh, get you to think, well, it's all about the technology, and if only we could perfect the technology, it would all be perfect. Not thinking about the governments that will then have access to literally the fingerprints, ultimately, if this can be enacted on uh, the scale of India into every country, well, every inhabitant on Earth could be digitally fingerprinted and iris scanned from birth and entered into databases that the government gets to maintain. And what will the government do with that information? Well... Well, that would be anyone's guess, but I'll let you guess where it goes from there. Again, we're exploring the Panopticon tonight, and it does sound rather bleak and rather dire, but don't worry, we are going to get into some good territory about some positive developments towards the end of tonight's broadcast, so please stay tuned as we take this short break here on Corbett Report Radio. right here on republicbroadcasting.org. So thanks again for tuning in. And tonight we're talking about the panopticon, the perfect prison, the idea that we are always being watched by the uh, the echelon and the NSA and all of the various systems that they have for listening and spying on everything they do that they're all too happy to put in our face each and every day by all sorts of news stories that leak out from the inside that, oh, by the way, you are being watched at all times. Are you afraid yet? Well, in some ways, we have to be concerned about what's going on, and we have to be working towards dismantling this panopticon, but we cannot give in to the fear, because that is exactly the way that this whole system functions. That's the point of the panopticon. And in order to make that point a little bit more clearly, perhaps we can turn to this article, which I penned back in March of 2008, again, almost four years ago, called Welcome to the Panopticon, New Technology Turning Society into a Perfect Prison. And it reads, quote, Imagine John Doe taking, in, taking a taxi in the near future. He steps into the cab and instantly his name, address, and a list of recent purchases flash on the cab driver's computer screen. Should I take you home to 221B Main Street, Mr. Doe? The cab driver asks, eyeing John in the rearview mirror to see if his face matches that of the digital photograph on his monitor. Uh, no, John says. How do you know my address? Oh, then can I take you down to your office on 52nd Street, if that's where you're heading? Or are you going to the drugstore over on 2nd Avenue, like last time? Hold on, John says. How do you know all of this? Oh, sorry, Mr. Doe. It looks like you're running a little short on cash right now. Are you going to want to put this trip on credit? The cabbie asks, punching some buttons on his computer. Something comes up on the screen and the cabbie stops, locks all the doors so John can't get out of the cab. What are you doing? I'm sorry, Mr. Doe, but it looks like your name is on a terrorist watch list. I've let the police know, and they'll be here shortly to collect you. Should John Doe really be so surprised? It may sound like the stuff of science fiction, but as a recent guest on the Corbett Report revealed, the technology that could make such a nightmare scenario possible is already starting to come on the market. Trevor Warner is a businessman in Australia who is marketing technology to vendors like taxi companies or pizza delivery companies who require a wireless credit card and smart card or authorization for their customers in an increasingly cashless society. 
talking about the RFID smart cards being promoted by major credit card companies like Visa and MasterCard, Mr. Warner says, The customers using those cards, if they walk within six feet from one of our terminals, we can pick up the signal from that RFID device. Speaking to the nightmare scenario outlined in the imaginary, in the imaginary tale of Mr. Doe's taxi ride, Mr. Warner adds that the company processing this information may know the identity of that person, and they may not even have, have used our service. For the full interview with Trevor Warner, there is a link here on CorbettReport.com, so I'll put that in the show notes. And it goes on to say, as the interview makes clear, the drive toward a cashless society, always marketed in terms of convenience, brings with it an attendant series of privacy issues that the major financial institutions, the controlled corporate media, and the government would prefer you didn't ponder too deeply. Indeed, what is seldom made clear is that the information on these smart cards are being stored in centralized databases and could conceivably be linked to national databases being created by governments like the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. More worrying still is that these governments have already created terrorist watch lists that are being used to suppress political dissent. Add to this the recent technological advances that allow for governments to create DNA databases containing the very genetic code of its citizens, X-ray cameras that can see through clothes being hidden in lampposts, behavior detection cameras that can monitor suspicious activities and call the police all by themselves, blood-scanning cameras that use infrared beams to count the number of people in each car, and cameras that could even predict terrorist events before they happen by identifying the micro-expressions of would-be terrorists in crowds. And it becomes painfully obvious that the potential for the government to know where you are and what you're doing at all times has never been greater. The key to understanding what this technology represents may come from a British philosopher who has been dead for 200 years. Jeremy Bentham came up with the idea for the perfect prison in 1785, essentially a circular structure with cells on the outer ring and a guard tower in the center. The panopticon works by allowing guards to conceivably watch each prisoner's movements at all times. The genius of the panopticon, however, is that the prisoners cannot see if they are being observed, and so eventually start censoring their actions as if they were always being watched. In effect, they begin to police themselves. The Panopticon stands as a metaphor for what is happening in our own day and age, except in our time, the Panopticon is not an architectural structure like a prison. It is the very planet itself. We are increasingly being watched, tracked, traced, our data stored and logged in national databases to which citizens do not have access. The cumulative effect of this technology is that citizens end up like the prisoners in Bentham's Panopticon, afraid to do anything out of line for fear it may be seen someday, somewhere, by someone. This is amplified by the fostering of terror paranoia by various government programs to make the prisoners of the panoptic system into citizen informants in a type of snitch state. So we'll leave that article there. Again, of course, you can go into the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio to get this article and to hopefully go and peruse some of the links that I include in there to some of this incredible technology so that we are at least aware of the system that we're facing so that we can better face it. And coming up after the break, we'll go into some more of the work that I've done on the Panopticon in the past, including an interview that I conducted just earlier this week that hopefully offers at least some key and some clue about how we, the average person, can fight back against this panoptic system. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on CCTV. It wasn't long after the introduction of the television camera that those in positions of power began using it to track and surveil the public. The first closed-circuit television camera was deployed by Siemens AG, a company that sponsored, funded, and collaborated with the Nazi regime, so the Nazis could monitor rocket launches from the safety of a distant bunker. Within seven years, the first commercial CCTV cameras were available in the U.S. Advertisements for the systems were at pains to point out that they required no government permit to operate. That claim in itself is interesting. It's difficult for us in the age of pervasive surveillance technology to appreciate just how thoroughly these technologies have altered our sense of the public and private spheres. Today, Google can send street view vans around the streets of our cities, snapping up pictures and Wi-Fi data alike or the average person can share their most intimate details with social network friends who they've never even met. Now, with services like Google Latitude, you can even allow these friends to track the precise GPS coordinates of your cell phone in real time. But 60 years ago, would-be purchasers of CCTV cameras had to be reassured that they didn't need a special permit from the government to monitor their own property. The difference between the 1940s understanding of the value of privacy and our current blasé attitude toward electronic snooping is perhaps best illustrated by 1984. In this classic dystopic vision, Orwell lays bare the potential horrors of a total surveillance society. Every movement is tracked, and people are never out of sight of the all-seeing, all-hearing telescreens. When someone is acting out of line, the telescreen can even bark commands at them. Today's CCTV cameras are ubiquitous, with Londoners estimated to be caught on camera 300 times a day. CCTV cameras in England are now being equipped with loudspeakers so that antisocial behavior can be rebuked in a child's voice. CCTV cameras are now routinely equipped with microphones and are admittedly used by law enforcement to listen in on conversations. IBM, another company whose German branch actively collaborated with the Nazis in World War II, is developing behavior monitoring cameras tied to AI computers that scan crowds for signs of terrorist behavior. Walmarts and other retailers across the U.S. are showing televised messages from the head of Homeland Security urging Americans to spy on their fellow shoppers. And now, the federal government is announcing it is ready to test technology that has been quietly installed in the back door of every broadcaster in the U.S., allowing the president to interrupt all radio and TV broadcasts at any time. In the 1940s, this was a nightmare vision of a totalitarian future. In 2011, it's our mundane reality. Of course, this tyranny, like every tyranny, has come cloaked in the mantle of security, the cameras, we are told, are there to keep us safe. They help solve crimes, say the mouthpieces of the technological control grid. When their presence is conspicuous, they say they can even prevent crimes. Both claims are demonstrably false. A 2003 study in the Injury Prevention Journal concluded that there was no evidence that CCTV cameras have any effect whatsoever in deterring violent crimes. 
A 2007 report from Britain's own home office admitted that many CCTV cameras that had been installed to monitor crime had since been repositioned to serve solely as traffic cameras and record the license plates of passing cars. Data obtained from the British government under a Freedom of Information Act request in 2007 showed that of the five London boroughs with the highest concentration of CCTV cameras, four of them actually had a below average rate of apprehending criminals, whereas Sutton, one of the least CCTV-laden areas, had a well above average apprehension rate. A 2009 meta-analysis of 41 CCTV studies concluded that CCTV had no substantial impact on crime in the UK, despite the globally unprecedented 500 million pounds that local city councils had sunk into the spy cameras in the previous decade. These and many other studies all point to the falsity of the claim that the CCTV cameras are there for our protection. Time after time, when the facts and figures are analyzed, they show the CCTV has almost no effect in preventing or solving crimes. In the face of this evidence, it becomes all the more perplexing that CCTV surveillance has not only not been abandoned and discredited as a failed technology, but that country after country is following the UK's Big Brother lead and deploying more and more CCTV cameras on the streets of their cities. This seeming paradox, like so many others, can be partially answered by the profit motive. Since the mid-1990s, UK CCTV surveillance has become a billion-dollar industry. If that success can be repeated in other markets, then the rich and well-connected stand to make a windfall from whipping the public into a crime wave hysteria and then offering the cameras as their solution. But there is something more fundamentally troubling about this entire CCTV surveillance grid than mere hucksterism. It is the question of trust in the so-called authorities who are controlling, monitoring, and tracking the systems. Not just the trust in those currently in charge of the system, but in anyone who will ever control these systems, that they will never abuse this technology or use it for their own ends. The question of trust can be stated simply. What happens if the criminals are in charge of the cameras? On the morning of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, there were at least a dozen CCTV cameras in the direct vicinity of the Alfred P. Murrah building that recorded the approach of the rider truck or captured it being parked in front of the building. A source involved in the investigation told the LA Times that two of the cameras showed the explosion itself and that two of them showed McVeigh exiting the truck. Yet this slam-dunk evidence, evidence that would, would have made the conviction of McVeigh an open and shut case, was never produced in court. It was never shown to a jury. To this day, no member of the public has ever been allowed to see this video. Instead, it and the other surveillance tapes from the area were confiscated and classified by the FBI in the name of national security. But why? According to the LA Times source, the footage also shows a second man emerging from the cab of the rider truck minutes after McVeigh walked away. This man, in a baseball cap with a flame design, answered to the description of John Doe No. 2, the mysterious second suspect who has been identified by dozens of eyewitnesses, but who the FBI, after having released a composite sketch of him, now claims never existed. A Utah-based attorney named Jesse Trenadu finally managed to sue the government for some of the CCTV tapes from the area. He was ultimately able to secure 30 different surveillance tapes, four of which have had, would have had clear views of the rider truck's approach that morning. All four of those tapes go blank in the minutes leading up to the bombing, precisely as the truck was passing by. The official explanation? All of the tapes, 
every single one of them were being changed at the precise moment that the truck was passing. The tapes of the explosion and of John Doe number 2 have still never been released. The tapes from the CCTV cameras on the Murrah building itself, cameras whose footage was being stored off-site and thus were not destroyed in the blast, have never been acknowledged to exist. The story of the CCTV footage in the London Underground on 7-7 is equally unbelievable. Just days after the bombing, Andy Trotter, the Deputy Chief Constable of British Transport Police, bragged about the CCTV network in the underground, claiming that there would be an intense investigation to sort through the images and identify the bombers. As it turned out, the police didn't have much to look at after all. Of the 76 cameras at King's Cross that morning, 75 were malfunctioning during the 20-minute period, which was coincidentally the exact period when the four alleged bombers were passing through the station. Luckily for investigators, the one camera that was working in the Thames Link Tunnel managed to capture an image of the four accused walking two by two. We are told that this image is so startling that the police officer who first saw it immediately identified them as the bombers. Amazingly, this is the last image of three of the four men. There are no images of the supposed bombers buying their tickets for their supposed suicide bombing journey, no images of any of them boarding the trains, no images of them on the trains, despite the availability of CCTV from the trains. The movements of the alleged bus bomber, Hasib Hussein, are equally amazing. We are told that he entered a McDonald's to insert a fresh 9-volt battery into his explosives, but there is no footage of this. The manager turned off the shop's cameras just before Hussein entered. He is alleged to have taken a number 91 bus along the Euston Road, but there is no footage from the camera on the bus. The inspector in charge of the case can no longer even remember why the police were unable to find or use the footage from the bus's cameras. They are simply unavailable. He is alleged to have boarded the number 30 bus at Euston Station, the bus on which he is alleged to have activated, activated his explosives. But there is no footage of this. The cameras on this bus were mal malfunctioning too, and hadn't recorded anything since the previous year. Again and again, we find that the surveillance system that is there to protect the public has an uncanny ability to break down just as it is most needed. And even if every one of these malfunction coincidences were actually coincidences, the lesson is still plain. If the criminals control the cameras, they can cover up their own crimes. The all-seeing eye of the surveillance state does not represent something of benefit to the public. Like any technology, the cameras themselves are neutral and can be used for good or bad. But if we sit idly by while the police state control grid is erected around us, we are ultimately putting into the hands of the authorities of this and every subsequent generation the responsibility of using these systems and trusting that they will never be abused. But if history has taught us anything, it is that an overarching central police authority is the last place we should put that trust. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. All right, friends, that was a video that I recorded back in last year, 2011, in March, called The Last Word on CCTV, of course, referencing the growing camera technology that is used to surveil us and track us and trace us, increasingly so as the technology becomes increasingly sophisticated. And of course, referencing the UK police state, which has become infamous for being the most surveilled country in the world with so many cameras, it's absolutely mind-boggling. 
and it's a, a, a huge problem and a growing concern, obviously, for Brits out there. So it was my honor earlier this week to talk to Charles Ferrier of No CCTV, an organization based in the UK that's doing work helping inform and educate people about how to get the CCTV out of their neighborhoods. And I thought it's an absolutely valuable resource for people to, to know about, not only in the UK, of course, it's very uh, pertinent there, but also in the US, in Canada, in Japan, in Australia, all around the world. It's important to understand how this process is working and uh, some of the ideas that people can use to, to uh, hopefully transfer to their own local area and fight the implementation of these cameras. So I talked to Charles Ferrier earlier this week. That interview is up in its entirety on CorbettReport.com. Of course, the notes for tonight will have a link directly to that, CorbettReport.com slash radio. Well, let's take a, a listen to an excerpt from that interview where I ask uh, Charles specifically about the t- kind of reaction that he's seen in his work to people who are aware of the encroaching police state tyranny that is represented by the cameras and the surveillance state but who feel that it's just too overwhelming and that the people can't make a difference. Well, I ask uh, Charles to address that point and some of the things that no CCTV out of the UK is doing to help empower people to make a difference and to take the cameras down. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we find when we're out and about talking to people, doing talks, giving presentations, that there are a lot of people who get what's going on, but absolutely they have given in and believe that this is too big to find. And what we have to keep trying to press home to them is that it really isn't. That this idea of Big Brother is a, is a concept, but it doesn't exist. There isn't um, a, a super state somewhere, something, well, I'm not going to say there isn't one at all, but really the cameras that you see going up at the end of your road are not being put in by that person. They're being put in by a local official who's, who's doing this. A lot of the groundwork is done at the local level. And in a way, CCTV is easier to fight than ID cards because ID cards was completely a central government issue. Uh, but there are loads of these issues which are still at local level. And at that level, it's so much easier to fight because that means there are, there's a council meeting that you can go to. You can attend that meeting. You can challenge the people at the top, that the councillors in that. And rarely will they have thought this stuff through. They'll often just be saying, this is a good idea. Everyone's going to be in favour. Why not? And when someone comes along with some facts, they will struggle. Um, so what we're constantly trying to tell people is that don't be scared into submission with this stuff. Absolutely fight it because there are steps that you can do. Uh, we've followed several campaigns through. Uh, we've attended meetings. We've worked out the, the way they try and hide this stuff. And, wh- and when you get it on your own, it can be difficult. But when there are groups like No CCTV, we can advise you. We can tell you uh, who it is that will put this thing through, who will uh, launder the policy so that it appears to come from somewhere else. But ultimately, there's a lot of groundwork you can do attending meetings and interfering with this stuff. And if weight of numbers, they cannot get this stuff through. It still requires a democratic seal on it somewhere to say the people wanted it. They do still care about saying this is what the public wants. Um, and, and, you know, if, maybe if we won enough battles, they'd remove that. But at least we'd have forced them into the open to show that, that, that there's a false uh, system being set up here. But at the moment, we can still fight it, absolutely. Well, perhaps you can tell us about some of the campaigns that you've been involved in and some of the successes that you've had. I mean, the, um, in, in Oxford was the first one we set up, and what we did there was they were trying to put a set of, um, sort of permanently fixed cameras along a road in the east of Oxford, which is a uh, not the city centre, quite a bohemian student area, quite a nice area, but people loved it in that area. But they wanted to just sort of turn it into everything, every other part of Oxford, all these cameras are. Um, 
we fought against it. We didn't get a complete victory in that one, but we got them to back down a lot. We got them from 10 fixed cameras down the road to three temporary wireless cameras, much smaller cameras, uh, which are much easier to get removed. Uh, there were some problems with the campaign at the end, which is where it took two years to get uh, the real results on it, and people started to lose interest and go away. All that would require, I'm sure we can get those three cameras out of Oxford if people will just get active again. Uh, the biggest success story in the last uh, couple of years was in Birmingham, uh, where a campaign group was set up by Steve Jolly, uh, who we worked alongside, and he um, fought against the cameras, set up um, number plate recognition cameras and normal cameras, 216 cameras put around um, certain areas of Birmingham um, called Project Champion. Um, that was a huge one, and that was a, a massive victory because uh, in December of 2010 it was announced that those cameras would all go because of the weight of support uh, of, of public opinion against them. Uh, and in 2011, all of those 216 cameras removed from a city, a cost of over three and a half million pounds, sort of scheme that no one would believe it was possible to get those cameras removed because they want to say that money's been spent, millions of pounds of public money, but those cameras came down, and that was an enormous victory, and it, it definitely got the government and the, the powers that be on the back foot because that's why a lot of the stuff in the Protection of Freedoms Bill going through now is trying to soft-soap the surveillance society. Um, we've had other victories, um, but some of those are invisible. So what will happen is someone will contact us and they'll say, um, my local council is planning to put some cameras in. What can we do? Uh, we'll help them, point them at some studies, give them some advice. They'll go to a council meeting and a councillor might well back down straight away. So it never appears on the radar. All it, all it is is a, is a seed of an idea. Uh, and because that's the, in a way, that's the best way to get at these problems is to get them really early, nip them in the bud. So we had a few like that. We've had other successes in Birmingham, trying to block a few schemes there. Um, but we've not really got enough active people to stop these because you really do need that local angle. Is uh, for a uh, you know a group like No CCTV can be an advisory group, um, but we can't be all over the country. We can't attend local council meetings. Uh, but all it takes is a few people to do that, and then we can get more success. again for joining me for tonight's Corporate Report Radio here in the final uh, minutes of this week's broadcasts here on the program. And of course tonight we have been talking about Big Brother and the Panopticon and the Surveillance Society and all of the things that they try to scare us with by letting us know that we're being surveilled at all times. But the real secret to the real trick, exactly as we've been going over time and time again this week on the broadcast especially, is that all of the power, as always, resides with the people. 
There are way, way more of us than there are of them, the few at the top who control the system. And even if they could theoretically be watching each and every person at all times, well, that still should not stop us from speaking out against oppression, against tyranny, from speaking our mind on the issues that matter. And uh, we cannot allow them to control our minds with their panoptic society and to be guarding what we say at all times. So the message tonight, as every night here on the Corbett Report, is one of personal empowerment. If you want to change the system, look in the mirror Get involved, get active. If you're in the UK listening to this right now on the internet, hey, get involved with No CCTV. Go and email them and ask them what you can do at your own local level and what support they can give you and guidance they can give you to get the cameras taken out of your community. Or no matter where you are in the world, try to find out what's going on in your local community that you can get involved in. And if there's no group or something that you can join, we'll start one yourself. Once again, all of the power is in our hands, and we are the ones who are at least aware of this agenda and what it really means. So we are the ones who have to be taking action. And trust me, if you start it, the people will follow. And, uh, and many, many more people are joining the, the uh, choir here every single week. And uh, I still continue to see CorbettReport.com's numbers growing and growing and growing. It's a hopeful sign that we are more and more reaching out to a wider and wider audience and more and more people are picking this up and really we have reached a critical mass it's only up for the people to realize that and to take the uh, the action that they need to take in order to ensure that the people at the very top cannot have their way with us all we have to do is speak out and say no and resist and stop obeying these phony unconstitutional orders and all of these phony laws that they keep trying to pass and just say we've had enough, and that's fundamentally it. That is the decision we have to make. That is the mental line we have to draw in the mental sand and say that nothing will cross it. And uh, when they try, well, the resistance is victory. So that's the message I'd like to leave you with tonight. And, of course, uh, resistance depends on the support of people like yourself in every possible way, whether that means taking action at your local level, whether that means spreading these types of radio shows and other things around to people that, uh, that you want to help to get out of the matrix, or no matter what kind of action you're taking on whatever level, I hope you do get involved and get in the game. And, of course, I am independent uh, media, so I do require your support. Corbett Report Radio is brought to you by you, so if you want to help keep the Corbett Report going... I suggest that you uh, sign up for a subscription to my newsletter or buy one of my DVDs to help support my work. Or, of course, uh, republicbroadcasting.org also having a fundraising pledge drive right now to try to raise money to keep the, uh, the network going and to hopefully expand it into new markets and reach even more people. So more information about that at republicbroadcasting.org. Until then, it's been an, another incredible week here at Corporate Report Radio, and I'm looking forward to another week next week. So thank you again for your time, and take care until Monday.